Hello everyone, welcome to Into the Void with Will Adolfi. Today feels like a very special episode for me. I'm going to be reflecting on one of the most profound thinkers I've ever come across. I'm going to be drawing from one book in particular by him called Die Wise, a manifesto for sanity and soul. And the author is called Stephen Jenkinson. I first heard Stephen on a podcast over a year ago, and I remember feeling quite unsettled and completely riveted at the same time. If you don't know what I mean by this, you probably will by the end of this podcast. He likes to use real stories to communicate meaning, and his stories, they become etched in your mind long after you read them. I didn't understand fully what he was saying initially, but his words, the poetic and his lessons, they're hard to grasp at a first glance, but I remember feeling mesmerised. This led me to listening to more of his work, his podcast, his lectures, and then eventually getting his book. It's hard to describe how affected I was by this one, but put it this way, I bought it in hardback, I got it on Kindle, I had the Audible version just so I could go over each passage multiple times, whether I was in my bedroom or on a train. And it takes me a while to process information, and Stephen's book is so dense, I was stopping after each paragraph to ponder and work through its richness. I must have highlighted over 300 sections, and I've written like 50 pages of notes, and there's still so much to unpack, but What I feel I have a grasp on, I'm going to be sharing today. Because Stephen was a palliative care counsellor for, I think, about 12 years. And he witnessed over a lot of death. 1,600 deaths, I believe is the number. And this book is a manifesto for spirit and sanity in the face of what he saw over and over in what he regards as the death trade. Ultimately, this is a meditation on love grief and living as though we'll actually die. I'm going to be reading directly from the book at times whilst responding to and attempting to unpack Stephen's work, pondering if you will, so you'll have a mix of his words and my interpretation of them. At the beginning of Die Wise it says the book is for whom anyone who will die (laughs) and I'd like to say the same here. This one's for anyone who has an end. Before I begin, I think it will help to have an open mind for this podcast. So without further ado, let's dive in. I think it's apt to start by acknowledging that death isn't exactly a cocktail party topic or something to mention on a first date, which... I actually have done, by the way. (laughs) I can't help it, man. I'm steeped in the research and it ends up making its way into every conversation. But yeah, you are right. We, well, we didn't meet again. But death is rarely spoken about in any public domain, educational setting or between parents and their children. But why? Why does the very thing that everyone will experience make us feel so uncomfortable? Stephen is often viewed as an apostate in the temple of comfort. And this is one of the reasons why he doesn't 
really advocate his work or scream and shout it. If he's invited to speak, he will do so. And he's made this information available to those who are seeking or don't even know that they're seeking an alternative narrative surrounding death, life, love and grief to the version we currently have, which leads so many people to a state of what can only be described as an unquenchable existential despair and lostness at their time of dying. So straight away I was intrigued. How do so many people find themselves in this place when they die? And is there anything I can do now to avoid me ending up there? These were the questions that immediately had me hooked and I persevered in spite of my discomfort. But I want to make this very clear right now that researching and meditating on death heavily has been one of the most enriching learning experiences of my life. I no longer shy away from a topic and it has a practical application in my mindset on a daily basis. I feel it illuminates my days and in particular the moments of struggle with a sense of meaning and has played a part in me finding love for myself, the universe and the people I come across within it. It's wondrous in its architecture and deeply sad making. You have to see the ending of your time with the people around you or you'll take it for granted as if it's infinite. And in fact, this is a great place to start because the first thing my dad said to me when he got his cancer diagnosis was, I felt mortal. And instantly I was like, that's a very interesting turn of phrase because, Dad, you've been mortal this whole time. But we as humans in the West are forever functioning in a state of more time. We agree that we're going to die, just not today. And therefore we actually don't act as if we're mortal. This belief that we are going to die doesn't impact our way of living in any way. We don't act as if it were so. For example, if I said to you, do you believe in climate change? And you said, yes, I'd say, all right, well, how is that? And you'd say, well, I cycle to work, I recycle my plastic and I've gone vegan. And I'd say, fair play. <laughs> well, how are you acting as though you will die? And I don't mean in a you only live once sense. I don't mean that. There's a great story I'm going to paraphrase it. There was this Native American who turned up to an indigenous kind of person who turned up to a chat with some Western people. And they asked him a question, you know, what do you what do you think of our culture? And he merely said, I find you very strange. And they said, well, why? And he said, well, my understanding is that when you wake up in the morning, you assume you're going to make it through the day. And they said, yes, yes, we do. And he said, that is very strange to me. <laughs> so that's just another version of living that we're, well, we, we didn't even know, I didn't even know existed because we've lost touch with death and no longer view it as a part of life except at the same time we accept, quote unquote, it will happen. And this is hypocrisy. I mean, just think about it. When people jump out of planes, what do they say? They say, I feel so alive. But I don't want to think about death. 
that would be wallowing and make me depressed. I want to live. This is the line of questioning that I initially went to and everyone who I have these conversations tends to go to as well. Within the cultural narrative that we have on death right now, on bucket lists, newfound wisdom and dying comfortably, it's very hard to distinguish letting death in so it can affect the way you live in a life-affirming way to wallowing in a state of depression at the thought that we are going to die. Well, I ask, why is wallowing in one's own death the only version of acknowledging one's own death? Because we are going to die, are we not? Yes, but I don't want to talk about it. And this is why for me and for so many of us, dying isn't a known thing. And this is one of the parts of the book that really got under my skin because it is possible to not die. For dying is a verb and therefore it's something you do, not something that happens to you. And in that sense, there's a skillfulness to it. Dying asks something of you. And if it's something you do, then it's something you cannot do. Put it this way, your body knows how to die. Our hearts will stop, our blood will slow, and our lungs will breathe their last breaths. But what are you doing whilst your body wanes? And this is at the heart of the book. But what Stephen saw over and over was people refusing to die at their time of dying. And refusing to die can look like a number of things, but think kicking, wailing, screaming, slack-jawed and drooling. And this is why it's so important to discuss and learn about dying, because our dying actually means something. Our deaths impact what and who we leave behind. There's this amazing scene from his documentary called Grief Walker, which I recommend checking out. There's this mother, her name is Kathy, I believe. She's lying on a couch, she's terminally ill, she is going to die, and Stephen has sat with her, and she's explaining how she's so grateful to have lived for as long as she has, that she could be a mother to her two children for during their important years, but that she's worried, she's scared, because her family, they don't know how to express themselves as well as she does. And Stephen prods her and says, so you're afraid of the capacity to be a family when you're gone? And she nods her head in agreement. And then he says something that will stay etched in my mind, because he says, I'm going to tell you something now that's going to be hard to hear. But their capacity to be a family when you're gone will be derived from how you die, not what. In other words, how human you can be in the face of something that seduces you away from being human is the thing that will determine what kind of family they will be. How do you be a parent when you're dying? How do you be a spouse when you are dying? You have to learn something now that you never wish to learn. So in that sense, our deaths can either be the last manifestation of everything we know to be human, or it can be the undoing of our manifestation of everything we know to be human. And virtually everyone on Stephen's watch died in the second way. And after chatting with multiple doctors, 
it's clear that there is such a thing as a good death. But we can't rely on making it to the ripe age of 95, having lived a quote-unquote full life, to feel like we have crafted a willingness to die. And I just want to make this clear, a good death doesn't mean wanting to die, and I'm still working through all this. But we are under no obligation to want to die. A good death means the person has crafted a willingness to do so. That they are turning towards death, not wanting to, but knowing that this is the natural way of things. I like to think of it as the person turns towards death and they turn back and they wave at the people they love with tears in their eyes, saying something like, I don't want to die, but die I must. Bye everyone. I love you all. Getting good at dying for anyone involved in it doesn't mean that you are fine in spite of it all. It means to be wrecked on schedule. It means not wanting to die when you know you are dying. It means saying so. It means wanting more than anything for your loved one not to be dying and telling them this. It means missing people long before they die and telling them so. It means being sad with people instead of about them. And what Stephen means by this to me is that dying should affect us deeply. And it's clear our uncomfortableness surrounding death makes it very hard for people to live with someone who is dying. We haven't crafted a cultural language that makes it possible for people to connect amongst a time of dying. We use words like comfortable, strong, accept and become obsessed with solutions, treatment options and miracles. And what Stephen saw over and over again was that during the last act of someone's life so much is left unsaid and unresolved when the person spends it refusing to die. As though dying is the enemy and is not welcome. It's like as soon as life asks something from you, we cash out. Think about it, everyone talks about quality of life, but you hear no one talking about quality of death. I heard Stephen tell this story of a 28-year-old woman who he met at a hospice. She has about three months to live and he said something like this, I, I meet her in a lift. And I don't know her, but I know something. She isn't going back down those stairs again. And it's a very mysterious encounter to meet someone you've never met before and to know something about them they don't know. There's no superiority or mastery that comes from it. It's forlorn. And you wonder whether they do know. And you wonder how deeply they are inhabiting the final days of their life. Then the mum came in and I asked the woman, what's your understanding of what is happening to you? And the woman said she was seriously ill, as if this was a synonym for dying. I don't let it be a big part of my life, she said, to which the mum responded with a thumbs up. That's my girl. And my yoga instructor says I'm on the right track. I mean, what chance does death have in this house? When it's demonised and interruption into your constitutionalised right to live a normal life. You dying is your life. 
And your refusal to know that is not life-affirming. It's life-betraying. So when someone is referred to as strong at their dying time, what we mean is you can't actually tell whether the person is dying or not. Which, when you think about it for a second, is insanity. If we take the mother and yoga teacher from this story, we can completely understand their way of thinking. But we can also ask, why is a mother who colludes entirely in the denial of death, why is that called love? To cheerlead away her daughter from her existential and moral responsibility to inhabit the ending of her life. She's strong, you wouldn't know if she was dying. In a sense, this is schizophrenic. But if enough people collude, this becomes a hero's journey. And when do we let dying people off the meat hook of trying? When the symptoms gang up enough on them, become tangible and visible enough to break the positivist will of the most obdurate family member. That's when. Far too often we require a fierce amount of overt suffering manifest in mounting symptoms before the idea of enough already is ever allowed a place in decision making. That section really struck me. Because more often than not, it's too late before we realise the end was always there. And we live in a time and place that doesn't believe in endings. And this is what's traumatic. Dying isn't the traumatic part. The trauma comes from the time and place we're dying in. And the state of dire lostness that many people find themselves in at their time of dying is a byproduct of our inability to offer anything of sustenance on a cultural scale surrounding dying. Most people at a time of death fear the pain of dying. Everyone's idea tends to be of a good death surrounded by friends, family, dying in a pain-free state, usually sedated. But what Stephen saw time and time again was that even under severe sedation and in a pain-free state, people had a look of, and he says we don't even have a term that does the feeling justice, but existential angst. So the pain isn't what we fear, but rather we fear disappearing. And this is when the term lostness comes into play. Because at our time of dying, we may find ourselves in a position where we remember when people we loved in our lives previously died. And we remember how we just moved on with things and kept on living. And although it was hard, we managed to do so without that person there anymore. And then we may find ourselves desperate to cling on to the moment we find ourselves in. But the moment we're in isn't concerned with our feelings towards it. It's proceeding on anyway. So our fear of dying, according to Stephen, is an inherited trauma. It comes from having no root in the world and no indebtedness to what has gone before us. We learn to fear death. And here's a passage from the book that beautifully describes this state of being lost at a time of dying and how the cultural narrative we have now is fueling this. In the early days of diagnosis, 
A dying person has his or her new purpose in life to be anywhere but here, to know anything but this, to go after that fugitive running down the street called my normal life. But in the last days, there is more often a feeling of this and this only. When older dying parents in their last days or hours mysteriously stop wanting to see or talk to their adult children, this makes for a lot of heartache. But what is really happening is that the dying person is distracted by the sorrows and grief and familiarity of the living from the epic project of setting his or her face in some other direction in a way that finally obeys what is happening. They no longer face those who have come from them, but face instead, or try to face, those from whom they came. That is the instinct to begin dying towards their beginnings, rather instead of living for what they have begun. But the instinct is hamstrung when after generations of immigration, flight, amnesia about ancestry, a dying person isn't sure at all from whom they came, or where home is to be found or faced. This is where the lament about not knowing what to do really comes from. So how can we inhabit the final days of our lives rather than refuse to do so? What do we do with the more time we already have? Well, as I think, all I know is authentic conversation means acknowledging the elephant in the room. And at a time of dying, that elephant is death. So in order to connect and be a good friend, spouse or a parent at a time of dying, that means letting death have a seat at the table. Stephen says, tell your spouse everything he or she doesn't want to know or hear. And don't wait to be asked. Don't aim for acceptance or comfort. Aim at this. I'm going to give you something of your death now through mine. So you'll have something reliable when you get here. Something of me. Let me love you that way. Here's what you'll have to say more than once to plant both of you in the time you're in. I don't want to be too lonely before I have to be. I'm not going to sit with all this by myself waiting for you to be ready to talk about it. So here goes. Tell me please what you think about when you look off into the distance turned entirely inward. Likely I won't have someone to ask me these things when it's my turn. Tell me please what it is to be dying. What should I learn now to help me when it's my turn? Everyone's death before yours is a rehearsal. This is what your death can mean. This is what you leave behind. My barriers, they went up when I grappled with this. I couldn't get my head around the fact that it was a sign of love to want a person to die. This felt very wrong. Of course I don't want them to die, but they are going to. We all are, right? And if they're going to die, I want them to die well. And for them to die well, I have to give them permission to do so. And this story sums it up. There was a young girl who had weeks to live and her parents confided in Stephen as they found themselves desperate for a resolve. It shocked me to my core when I read that Stephen often found himself in the ridiculous position 
of asking people to die. Which is a dangerous and radical proposition in a culture that doesn't believe in endings. But the mother and the father of the girl and Griefwalker, the documentary, they speak with utter gratitude for Stephen. This is what they said. They said, Stephen told me everything I didn't want to hear but knew to be true. He told me my daughter was dying in 20 different ways because I kept throwing things at him, manoeuvres, but what if there's a miracle? What if it's all a bad dream? What if they got the diagnosis wrong? But he didn't budge. And when I finally gave in, a weight was lifted. I knew she was going to die. And we took her home. Each morning and night, hours were spent with fun and games without nurses dropping by. In her final days, she was having transfusions to keep her artificially alive. She was very out of it. Stephen said with each transfusion, it diminished her. Then she took one last final breath. And that was it. And in the documentary, you can actually see a picture the dad took of his wife moments after she died, holding her baby with complete sadness in their home. The dad said even to be able to pick her up alone, to have privacy and peace after she died, it meant something. There was a presence. This feels like love to me. It's like you agree to let a part of you die with the person you love as they die. In a sense, you agree to die with them. And you can only do that by first believing the end. Giving someone the permission to die becomes an act of love. Because in order to truly love something, you must love it in its entirety. You can't just love what's lovable about it. That includes the flaws and the frailties and the poverties. And that includes its end. Because without the end, that something isn't complete. So to love life truly, we must love everything that's included within it. That includes death. And love doesn't mean to like or to accept or to approve or to agree with. But rather it means to say yes to the way of things. It's active. We can't just say we love. We have to do. And because love and grief are intertwined, they are one and the same within the temporary nature of life. Grief has to be learned, which means it has to be taught which means it is possible not to learn it. When we keep insisting on grief being a feeling or a process that needs management and closure, we are talking about grief as an affliction, the same way we talk about dying. But something changes when we start seeing grief as a skill that needs learning, which is what it is. As a culture, we are grief impaired, not because we don't have what we need to feel bad, but because we are grief illiterate. We aren't taught to grieve. We are taught to handle grief, to resolve grief, to get on the other side of it. We need grief teachers and practitioners, not grief counsellors, until the day dawns when they've become 
the same thing. So if we take what Stephen just wrote there, for example, if we apply this to the end of a relationship, lovingly end for me means to grieve properly, not to resist or shove to the side, but rather to give yourself the time to actually grieve, to look at the pictures, to listen to the music, to go on the walks and remember, to be submerged in the grief of it all because it's meant to be sad and it truly is. For you have loved. And this is the activeness of love. For grief is a way of loving that which has slipped from view. And therefore loving is a way of grieving that which is yet to do so. Grief is a way of loving that which has slipped from view. And therefore loving is a way of grieving that which is yet to do so. Why should dying not break our hearts? Our solution to a broken heart tends to be less heart, less break. And we don't like to talk about it. As the old joke goes, the definition of a schmuck is somebody who, when you ask how he's doing, tells you. There's an amazing podcast called The Duncan Trussell Family Hour and... There's two podcasts in particular on there with Duncan and his mother. One of them is, I think, six months prior to her dying, she's been terminally ill. So she's six months before her death, having known that she's terminally ill, and then two weeks before she dies. And I recommend listening to these two podcasts because this woman is one of the most beautiful women I've ever heard. Her soul is truly remarkable, and she's doing a lot of inquiring, a lot of talking, a lot of being with what she's going through. I think she has a lot of experience in spiritual practice and that definitely aided her during this final act of her life. And there's one moment in particular in the second podcast, two weeks before she passes, where she's talking with Duncan, her son, and Duncan is saying, well, you're a you're a special case because his mum is telling him that we like to think that we're special but things disappear all the time and our ego tries to personalize personalize this but we are involved in that and he says yes but you're a special case and she responds well that's because i'm your mama that you think that and he asks, well what do we do about the heartache you know what do i do about the heartbreak <laughs> she says you cry. <laughs> and there's this long pause of a silence that has so much within it. And that story, that podcast, it just sums it up for me, really. Because love is the willingness to love, finally understanding that your love of this will not extend its day by one. Love becomes a recognition of the temporariness. And you love that too. The temporariness is an intricate part of the way of things. And it gives us sadness alongside preciousness. And suffering comes from not agreeing with the way of things. 
But death is a part of the way of things. And lostness, in that sense, is a condition of being unwilling to be in the place that we are. So learning to love the frailties of life is the defining factor in your ability in being able to inhabit and locate yourself in the present moment. For just think about the amount of death that has taken place to give you your life. From the animals to the plants, so much has passed to give you this moment you currently find yourself in. Death gives the opportunity for more life. And we're a part of this. We don't like to think we are, but we're here. And what makes us so special that we're different to everything that's here, that's given us life. For in this sense, our death is a debt we pay to have lived. And if we refuse to do so, you could refer to this as stingy. For you have turned up to life thinking you're entitled to something, to live normally, and want nothing to give to the world that's given you so much. Everything we've learned about dying, the trauma, the angst, the meaninglessness, is just that. Something we've learnt. We have neglected death as a part of life. It remains an unknown abyss that's filled with depression. And many children are silenced as they search for answers in their developmental years. But it doesn't have to be this way. I'm going to read a rather large section now from the book that touches upon how initiation, the introduction of death to children and people could play a large part in shifting the narrative. What is true is that you will die. It has always been true. But initiation turns dying from a feared thing into a known thing. This is the sanest reversal imaginable of our insistence that knowing you will die is the thing that will traumatise you and cause you suffering. Imagine how it all could be among us if we began to understand all the talk about dying and the news about dying and the visits to the hospital and the deathbed and the graveside and the memorial service and all the sorrows and grief of life as our initiation into personhood. We could change it from trauma and loss and therapy and depression into tempering and emotional intelligence and spiritual maturity and wisdom. We could make our way of dying into our way of person making. Every death that precedes our own could be our school, our initiation hut. Every dying person and every witness, our fierce teacher, our own death could be that. For everyone who attends it and hears about it, if it is messy enough to give everybody lots to do. When dying is understood as justice, mercy, a sign of compassion that is stitched into the fabric of life itself, that understanding is a midwife that can bring us into a world-loving, community-serving love of life. That is its power. The news of our dying is the initiation into life that we are seeking Every child who is kept from the graveside is starving for a story of how life is and why, and whether that is just. Instead, they get the saturine drip of blanket reassurance or the empty calories of platitude and metaphor. When you don't let dying change how you live together, whatever the motivation, the consequence is missed last chances for authentic talk between you, shared sorrow, teaching, learning how to live as if what is happening is happening. 
It is the grief that grows from giving in to the greater understanding that life is bigger in every way than the human lifespan, and must be. The other half is the awe and the love of life that begin to stir in us, born from seeing that this has all been going on without us knowing it, feeding us the whole time, waiting for us to come to this understanding and to take our place in the story and to keep up our end. Keeping up our end means awakening to the obligation we have to all that has given us life, to all that has lived and died before us. With it all comes an unbidding understanding that each of us is incalculably, inextinguishably obligated to life for our life, and that this is a debt that we cannot and should not be able to repay. It will always be so. I'm going to finish on this. When I have these discussions with people and I tell them I'm trying to prepare for my own death, they look at me very oddly. Why would you want to do that? Because it was when I heard Stephen say that when I glimpsed the end of what I claimed to love, being alive, that was the beginning of my capacity to love it. When I saw the end, I was granted the capacity to fully inhabit and locate myself in being alive. Now, he wasn't approving the end. This isn't about approval. What of life can be approved of anyway? This is loving the world anyhow. This is saying some kind of reluctant, hard-earned amen to the way it is. Which is what all dying asks of us. Softening of the heart toward the hardness of life. And just conceptually wrestling with death has given me so much. I haven't seen my, my own death yet, like Stephen, nor have I attended to someone's dying, but I've definitely unleashed myself from the discomfort surrounding the mere mention of the word. And I will continue down this path. Stephen's book genuinely changed the way I see the world we live in. And I know it sounds a bit trite to say that about a book, but it's the truth. And I want to close by saying I understand that reading this book pales in comparison to attending to a dying person. I still don't know death. But I want to know. And that's the difference. Here's a final passage. You and I will die. This is a given, entirely proper. There's a whirl in the thumbprint of the maker of life. But the manner of our dying is not a given. That with deep labour is up to us. This is one of the life gifts entrusted to us at birth, dazzling as the night sky and burdensome as any vision is of how it all could be. Thank you so much for listening. Um, whew, I really am intrigued to hear from anyone who listened and found themselves with questions, wondering. My email is intothevoidpod1 at gmail.com. Please don't hesitate to get in touch. I'd love to have these conversations because it is quite rare I think nor would I want to 
you know, enforce to my friends that we talk about death, but the conversations that I have had with the people that are willing to do so, they are truly profound and I feel like we can just learn so much. Anyway, <laughs> as once again, thank you so much uh, for listening and I'll see you all soon, I hope. Okay, bye guys.